when are we out of balance? If you think of the balance between creativity and aliveness and deadness and stuckness, there's that wonderful idea about we wake up each day and there are two gargoyles at the end of the bed. And one is the gargoyle of anxiety and one is the gargoyle of lethargy and death. Now, if I choose lethargy and death, I can stay with the status quo, can do what I always do, life is small, I know the predictable things, I stay with what's safe. If I pick the gargoyle of anxiety, I dance with what's new, with what is anxious-making, I take risks, and life gets bigger each time I stand down fear. Welcome. Uh, thanks for uh, for coming back. If you're revisiting the podcast, and welcome if this is your first time. There's plenty of material to explore, so do so if you like it. I hope you got your dancing shoes on. Um, and this was a this conversation with Doctor Nanine Ewing was. Uh, was great to have, and it's great to listen back to. So after the conversation, Nanine and I began discussing how this project or what this project has been like, and I I was able to really talk about my, my experience with the music that I'm incorporating. So this is kind of a, a, a retrospective for me. I get to mine through early material and, uh, you know, in my life and, and bands and singer songwriters and groups that have affected me and influenced my life. And certainly where I, where I spent many, uh, many evenings at shows, uh, at a different stage, at a different stage of my life. And uh, and while I, I don't get to do that as much now, this has been really exciting to be able to do that in the, <laughs> in the quiet of my own uh, of my own home and my own office. Um, but this one was really neat. Nanine has one of her comments at the very end of our conversation after we'd shut it all down. Um, she made a comment about music and movement and dance and moving the body. So maybe a day or two later, I, I just a big smile came up on my face as I thought about a band that I used to dance to. So I want to uh, maybe introduce the listeners, you all, to a group that you can't, you can't stay still when you're listening to this group. Um, so so first, let me let me talk about Nanine a little bit, and then I'll get into uh, some of this process. 
Uh, I want to read Nanine's bio, talk about some of the details associated with this episode, and then we'll get started. Nanine Ewing is a clinical psychologist in private practice in Houston, Texas for the past 33 years. She's a fellow of the American Group Psychotherapy Association and a certified group psychotherapist and a dance movement therapist. She's spoken nationally and internationally on the subject, subjects of nonverbal communication, Jungian theory, group process, group dynamics, psyche and soma, countertransference, the anti-group, and many other topics. She teaches in an alternate training route for dance movement therapists and embodied neurobiology for advanced, for advanced clinical training and experiential therapies in Austin, Texas. She has a private practice in Houston, Texas, and runs three groups a week for clinicians and private clients. She does in-depth individual work with a Jungian orientation, focusing on dream work and symbolic work in the body and the psyche. Her clientele includes a large percentage of her fellow clinicians. She has a PhD in clinical psychology and a master's in counseling psychology and a certified Adlerian and is a certified Adlerian and has studied hypnotherapy to the consultant level. She believes deeply in the work of the therapist in her life and has been committed to her own therapy and analysis for the, for the entire spectrum of her clinical work and dedicates herself to encouraging other clinicians to do the same. Uh, as a note, you can reach Nanine at naneneewing.com, N-A-N-I-N-E-E-W-I-N-G.com. So Nanine, as you'll learn, has movement at her core, and it started early. So I, I have this fantasy, this, this image in my mind about Nanine listening to this. And uh, despite the fact that we talk about some, some deep subjects, including death and aging and the unconscious and uh, the, the, the judgment from the culture, um, uh, at least the, the, the one in which Nanine and I are a part, um, the judgment of the culture upon women and the pressures to look a particular way and be a particular way and fit into pretty confining spaces. And uh, if anything, Nanine has danced her way out of a lot of those confining spaces, and she's, a, she's an inspiration, there's no doubt. So my, my image of hers is uh, getting to move a little bit to a band that has certainly, has certainly made me move a lot in my life. So take a listen for a second. I, I think this album was, was recorded at one of my favorite venues, a place I used to play all the time called Caravan of Dreams in Fort Worth. And, uh, and this is the way Mingo Fish Trap would enter into a venue and let all be known that the show is, is beginning. So that's a good start. 
Uh, and at the end of the episode, I uh, <laughs> it's it's primarily a gift to Nanin, um, but definitely a gift to anybody listening who, um, if you've been exposed to Mingo Fish Trap, you know, and if you haven't, you'll begin to. Follow that thread. You can reach them at mingofishtrap.com. That's M-I-N-G-O-F-I-S-H-T-R-A-P. It has been a great group of guys, and my first exposure was probably 20 years ago. And any chance I'd get, I'd go see them. So there's something pretty profound about being able to incorporate music like that in a conversation that that does explore these... Uh, these deeper and, uh, well, they're deep realities, but they're inevitabilities in life. Death and aging and, um, and those kinds of forces that, that come upon us despite our, our willful <laughs> desires that tend to disrupt our plans and what we envision will, will happen for better or for worse. So again, that's Mingo Fish Trap. They got a Facebook page also. The theme music for the podcast is Modern Nations, and you can get them at modernnationsmusic.com. I highly recommend checking out their music. The website, thesacredspeaks.com, is updated, and you will find um, a lot of information on there. In particular, you'll find all the songs that I'm, that I'm including, including music videos, so there's a music tab on there. Uh, I'm about to upload in the next month, I will upload videos from the class I just taught on the body and consciousness at the Young Center in Houston. Uh, and you will find all the information you need about participants on the, on the podcast. And um, uh, don't forget to like all the various <laughs> social media places if, if you do um, like it, that is. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, search the sacred speaks. I don't think there's anything for housekeeping. I think that uh, I think we'll just get to it. What I will say is that this conversation was one of those really rich conversations to be in, and uh, I'm grateful for Nanine's time, and certainly the person that she is. So, without any uh, without any further housekeeping, I'll leave it there and bring in Nanine. It's funny as I was, as we were getting prepared, I think about, I had this, you know, naturalistic observation was the phrase that went through my mind. And the reason being is because you've been kind enough to open your office up, you know, your home turf for me to set up, you know, all this crap that I've got all over your office. And I feel like a lucky person to be able to talk to you in this way mm. with a microphone, you know, six inches from your face. Uh, I also feel lucky to stare at this wall of books that I'm sitting across from as we talk. Um, but really from the first moment that you and I met, you know, I had a really, it was a great connection. And so this is, this whole project has been really fun for me to even get to know people that I know well to get to know them in a different way. Yeah. 
and of course yeah, you could say the term better but certainly a different way so i'm i'm just honored you know i'm honored for you mm. to sit down with me and have this conversation oh i'm thrilled <laughs> i'm honored as well and i'm so happy we're going to talk about the body yeah that's my world it's been my world since i was a little girl so thank you for that that was a good uh segue would, would it, that's where it starts yes right? yeah it's where we all hold the container the body comes from the word the bag the container <laughs> didn't know that and it has and holds the unconscious just as the mind does that's why if you get a massage and you're touched in a certain place and something opens up and you tear and cry mm. there's a memory there there's an unconscious holding just like we hold tension in the body and the body speaks, we talk about a pain in the neck. We talk about falling on our face. We talk about all the things with the language of the body because the body does hold and know all of the history and all the trauma and all the joy. I remember being a little girl of three and running through the house and running and running and always being so actively involved in life through my body. If I was anxious, I moved, I danced all the time. People would come over and my father would say, ask Nanny to dance for you. I'd already probably be dancing, but mm -hmm. I'd dance for them. And it was a way to soothe myself. It was a way to express my joy. And I remember my mother trying to slow me down offering me a nickel for any time that I would walk up the stairs and not run. And I'd get halfway up the stairs and I'd say, Mom, if I walk back down, I walk back up, can I have a nickel? She'd say, no, you have to just slow down and walk. And so one of my most traumatic memories is my mother trying to slow me down. And she tied me to a chair. She put masking tape over my mouth. She put me in the front yard so she could stop me and control me. And dreams are such a part of the reckoning of those traumas that I remember a dream that I was scooping mud out of my mouth and telling myself, you need to be silent. Whoa. So there's all these places where like sleep huh. is to regulate our body. The unconscious is trying to be regulated every day through to the conscious mind, through our dreams, through our synchronicities, through the extraordinary moments that happen every day. As I'm walking across the street here to come this morning, a pigeon comes down and stands right in front of me and looks at me. And I love birds. They're like my totem. I mean, I... I thrill when I see a new bird. And I thought, this is the Jungian way of thought, the extraordinary in the ordinary. Mm -hmm. How many people would stop and look at that bird and think about the transitional space between the other world and this world and the material meeting the psychic space? the other space, the transpersonal space, the transcendent space, the eternal and the material, the momentariness of life. 
I can't help but, you know, again, get to know you in a new way. Um, your story about that moment being in the chair is um, kind of hits you in the face, doesn't it? Yeah, it's my biggest trauma, but yeah. now it's processed enough uh-huh. that I can speak of that. And I can look at it as it's in our most wounded spaces that we're the most vulnerable, therefore the most accessible to our learning, our growth, our humility, therefore our humanity, and our totality. It's where the miner's gold is. If we can go through suffering as a part of life and trauma as a part of our teachers, then we can use that, like Alfred Adler said, what is the purpose of the symptom? What would your life be without it? What would that look like? That everything is teleological. It has a goal orientation. The the unconscious does. Mm. It's always trying to forward us, to heal us, to go all the way back. It even, it even has a prescience to forwarding. It's contextual. It's in the moment. And it comes from every day, the dream world in a symbolic sense of knowing. Because symbol and symptom come from the same root word. Symbol being to throw together, to have something that's representational of something else, like a sword that's being thrown towards something. Hmm. It's pointing towards. Whereas a symptom falls together like an accident, like it's a happening. They both come from that same Greek orientation of that word, to fall together, to come together. And so if you think of the symptoms of our life, even these illnesses, these horrible accidents, these horrible traumatic events, as making the narrative of your life, and if you can live with that, with consciousness, then you're moving towards a love of presence, Process and paradox. <laughs> I, <laughs> I immediately thought of how difficult, you know, because this is this is interesting. You know, you and I sit and talk with people all day long. You know, and I don't I don't know in your experience if this happens, but those three things: uh, presence, process, and paradox. We struggle with that. That's a like we like a fish out of water flapping around trying to get back in the the water. You know, we don't like that. No, we don't. But the more mature we get and the more conscious making we allow our life to be, the more we can tolerate ambivalence, the more we can tolerate ambiguity, the more we can tolerate that these polarities are attention to bring a third new consciousness, if we can hold these differences, if we can hold these difficulties, if we can hold the dark with the light, if we can hold the pain 
with the unknowing, the uncertainty, that any time we judge something, we decide how it is, we've made up our mind, Mm -hmm. we have stopped being curious, we've stopped letting the mystery in, Mm -hmm. we've stopped allowing something else to emerge. And so if we can ask ourselves the question when we're in struggle, well, what might this be in a spiritual path? What might this be helping to forward me in a way that I don't like this process? I don't like where I'm being driven. But maybe if I can allow it and see it as process and be present to it and see that the paradox of the shadow of it is to make me stronger, more conscious, softer, more wizened, then maybe I can tolerate more, make room for more, and be more whole, because that is the purpose of the unconscious, is totality of self. Its constitutionality is always building, every day, every moment that we can be conscious to it. It's like a bank that we're making deposits in. We have withdrawals when we have complexes and we lose our mind for the moment, or we wake up from a dream in a complex and we're in a really bad mood, and we don't treat ourselves or others with as much kindness. Those are regressive times but they also serve a purpose. It's like that Jungian idea about any time there's a defeat of the ego, it's a victory for the soul. Let me, let me argue with you for a second, because, like, yeah, I mean, I, I resonate with, I'm interested in all the things that you're saying, and there's a number of, little rabbit trails we need to go down. But the one thing, so, so my argument, is I just want to play devil's advocate, what do you say to the person, and I, and I want to get into story because I want to contextualize this a bit. What do you say to the person who says, there's no damn point, right? There's, oh, you're talking, because that, that I think is a fundamental split. You know, you've got these things you're talking, purpose and wholeness and all these terms and the idea of, progression well the alternative to that is this kind of like no it this is chaos this is chance this is just happenstance of all this collision of random events and here we are and if we if we accept that then we can recognize our finiteness and kind of make do but it's our clinging to purpose or meaning that actually creates a great deal of anxiety so I would imagine you've had somebody in your office before who's saying, come on, like, the, what are you talking about? Like, what do, you, so what, what do you do with that? I really try to bring people back to that if people are depressed or dispirited or unhappy and they're just stuck, they're just sitting with something as you describe, that unless we have a relationship to some kind of meaningfulness, we are disoriented and we've sort of misassigned our energies and that the spirit is dispirited. 
The soul has an animation for our life to become animated. And the more we're in relationship with that, the more anima and animation we can feel. It's kind of like the idea that I think dream work is incredibly important because those are like personal letters every day from your own symbolic world Mm -hmm. that are genius to your own context of where you are in your life, what you're facing, what you're still resolving from the past, what you're trying to move towards. And it can be punitive, it can be healing in a dream, it can be compensatory, it can be just the manifest material combined with some genius about, are you paying attention to this? I'm knocking on your door today. An unconscious material that's not processed, it's like the letter that's never read, is like food that's not cooked. It hasn't yet been put in the oven and given its fullness of ripeness to be really tasted and metabolized. And so I talk about that to that person who is dispirited or depressed. Where have they lost track? Where were they once feeling alive and happy about life? Where did they live in the chaos in a way that made sense for them and that they felt capable and alive to it? When did they lose track with that? How can we understand that and how can we get back to some of those processes? How do we visualize them? How do we remember them? That clicks, yeah. So, okay, then I went to, back to your story, um, you know, because I, I end up getting sensitive to people listening too, but I, where I go with that is, well, how do, you, how do you make sense of it? You know, your natural energy is movement-centered. Yes. Uh, you know, I know you. You know, that, like that's, uh, that's kind of just your, your, uh, your presence. It's your essence, right? And so to have you as a little girl, you know, kind of bound somewhat, you know, literally and figuratively bound. And you say you processed it, right? And not, you know. You always it. processing it. We never complete. Uh-huh. The unconscious is always processing. That will always be a part of me. If I'm shushed, if I'm silenced, I can feel the heat. And the more heat we have, the more history we have. We go on with these traumas, and they're part of our complexes. And complexes is like a storm of emotion from the past that's pricked in the present moment. It's triggered, and it has an attitude. It has a voice. It's like an emotional flu. It has feelings that come up in a complex of a racket, almost. A to B to C to D. And then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to feel that. And if we can be aware that, oh, I came out of that dream, and I felt really off balance. I'm in a complex. Maybe it's a little one. Maybe it's going to be a big one. I need to be mindful. What can I be conscious of? How can I be consciously walking through my day? And if I'm getting too off track, I need to go get nature. I need to go take a walk. I need to go read a poem Mm -hmm. and get to metaphor. I need to 
go sit and look at the birds. I need to do something that regulates me again because our greatest task is to emotionally regulate and to understand how we got dysregulated and that all of us have traumas that are always in the weaving of our personality and our emotional regulation and dysregulation. What makes us dysregulate? Triggers to, the, to those complexes, being too stressed and out of balance. If you think of balance as the balance between silence and activity, when are we out of balance? If you think of the balance between creativity and aliveness and deadness and stuckness, there's that wonderful idea about we wake up each day and there are two gargoyles at the end of the bed. And one is the gargoyle of anxiety and one is the gargoyle of lethargy and death. Now, if I choose lethargy and death, I can stay with the status quo, can do what I always do. Life is small. I know the predictable things. I stay with what's safe. If I pick the gargoyle of anxiety, I dance with what's new, with what is anxious-making. I take risks, and life gets bigger each time I stand down fear. Well, it seems to me that in that framework, and you've, now you've, you've said it something like this twice, that this really like uh, spits in the face of kind of what certainly our culture talks about when it comes to anxiety is that, you know, anxiety is not desirable. The way you're framing it, though, is that anxiety is desirable. So I'm thinking about how do you make sense for somebody when they are, uh, you know, and I don't know, I can make a couple of connections there, but how do you make sense of that when somebody says, well, no, 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 I'm anxiety, like I need a pill or a puff or a, you know, to, to avoid it at all costs. Um, and we do. Yeah. We, we do a lot of addiction to run from it. But if you think of anxiety as discomfort rather than the projection into the future of all the catastrophic, destructive ideas about futurizing, this means that's going to happen. Oh, no, I'm worried. Well, we're worried we're ahead. We're not in the present moment. Mm -hmm. And so the anxiety, if we can be with it, is I'm disturbed in this moment. I'm uncomfortable. What am I uncomfortable about? And can I be in discomfort? Because if I'm in discomfort and I have movement ahead, in this moment, I'm going to take on that fear, or I'm going to just say, okay, I'm uncomfortable. Let me keep walking through this, and let me stay out of the catastrophic, futurizing thinking that makes me feel so terrified that I get paralyzed, or I get such big anxiety that it overwhelms me, because I'm thinking all these really big thoughts but they're not happening now. Or I'm going back to the past about what happened in the past. Oh my God, it's going to happen again. That's not happening now. So how do I stay out of what is the fear that's already happened that it'll happen again or the fear of what might come? Because yes, those things could come, but you're going to miss this life, this time, 
this moment. And we all have anxiety. We have death anxiety. We have existential anxiety. It's like, let me see if I can get the phrasing of this right. That wonderful movie, Happy Feet. Of course, I would love that movie. Of course. Oh, sure. (laughs) But he's dancing, and he says, why are you dancing? And he says, because I can, for a moment, not be in my existential fear, and I'm happy. I love that you love that movie. That was a good movie. Okay, I want to go back. So let, let's kind of be uh, <laughs> the, the opposite of both of our typologies for a second. Um, let's put this in a linear form. When you're growing up, because you know, how old were you when that chair happened? I was five. I'm oh. 68 now, and I'm still aware of it. Yeah. I'm still with it. I don't have the total awareness even of the entire event. But I have the knowing in my body. I have the knowing in that I've heard the story so many times. I have the knowing in that I can feel the constriction in my throat. And even as I'm talking about it now, Mm -hmm. you can hear the hoarseness. And that's my body speak. That's the sacred speak. That's still the reminder and the knowing that that will be with me until I die. It's like there's another story of when I was going to have a hernia operation at three. And I was told, oh, you're going to lollipop land. You're going to love this. And they take me to the hospital. They put me on a gurney. They take me in a room that's the children's operating room. And there are balloons all over the wall that are painted. And I'm supposed to be in lollipop land. There are also lollipops on the wall. And they put this black ether plastic thing over my mouth. Smells terrible, feels terrible. And the thing that I feel the most is they lied to me. They lied to me. So my one of my greatest wounds is if anyone lies to me or is off course with me. And of course, the work that we do each day is to help people face and find truth, to speak it, to Mm -hmm. know it. And so the more I know those truths, that those wounds are still with me and that those are my complexes and those are woven in my psyche, as all things that we experience are in the narrative of the making of our own story, our own myth, our own personality, our own belief system. And some of our beliefs are mistaken. So how do we sort through them and find truth? So, yeah, the, I just thought, so how do we... How or what is, in your estimation, what is the process of bringing that into consciousness? For me, there are many paths. I pay attention to my dreams every day. I see that as the symbolic world of the unconscious trying to write me and my conscious world. And I think that is 
a huge place for us to pay attention to. We have six dreams a night. If we can collect one, we're lucky. Some people don't even think that they dream or don't recognize they dream because they don't practice dream retrieval, Mm -hmm. which is the first five minutes when you're just awakening, hopefully naturally, and moving as little as possible so that you can hold in your body and your body memory and in your mind the images so that you can recover and recall the details and return from that unconscious veil, from the conscious world to the unconscious, and collect like a trailer of a movie the rest of the movie to come back to you as much as possible. And in that, it's an ephemeral space. It's like smoke around a campfire. It's very clear in the moment, and then it dissipates. So if we don't write it down, if we don't attend to it, tell it, feel it, think about it. It's gone. But that's material every day that's at our exposure. It's there for us. So is the instincts that we have, the intuition that we have every day. So is the synchronistic moments that happen where something from your instinctual self, your intuitive self, you think about a friend and the phone rings. You're thinking of someone and you find that all of a sudden their name or a name like their name comes up and you go, oh, it's just thinking of them. We look at how we can be in silence with ourselves. That's why I think... There's so much movement now towards yoga, excuse me, and meditation and slowing down because we've gotten so quick and fast with technology, with things happening fast, expectation of moving so much. We even sleep too little in our culture. So their sleep is depriving us of the dream world, depriving us of enough of a sense of defenses to deal with the onslaught of all the things that are happening in our culture, in our society, in our life that's too stressed and too busy. We do too much. We don't slow down to be, to be with ourselves, to be enough, to just have time that is unscheduled so that those things can be allowed to be noticed, the moon in the sky, nature, to have pathways. For me, it's dance and movement. It's metaphor. And I read poems every day before I come to work because that is the symbolic world, the representational world, the world of body, of spirit, of mind in the imaginal realm. They're practices that all of us need to have because we are animals and we are ritualized. But if we can make those rituals rich and conscious making, we live with even more groundedness while allowing the world of the imaginal and the mysterious world to enter. You said a couple of words here that are signifiers for concepts that think are new to this project um you you and I, 
So I can't figure out if I want to argue with you there. I say that, you know, I mean that like devil's advocate or um, go into. Yeah, I think I think the first w- w- can we talk about intuition a little bit? Yeah, I think that would be helpful. Um, and then I want to move into. Um, well, I want to go wherever we want to go. And okay. then we'll but let's let's kind of bat around intuition a little bit. Tell okay. me what your thoughts are. Um, Because and the reason why I ask actually is to the second point that I was going to make, which is I hear somebody listening to to you talk about dreams. Um, I certainly pay attention to dreams in my life and in my office with with people. Uh, But I know it's tough for a lot of people to get. Yeah. Um, And and it doesn't really fit in our certainly in our culture. and and I, I I have these old like neuroscience. Uh, maybe it was from all my classes in neuroscience because I was potentially heading down that path when I was in grad school before grad school. Um, the phrase is random firing. Mm. You know that's the random firing or um, decay or um, what's the other term? I can't I can't come up with it right now. But it, it gets it gets at that like the it is the brain's way of managing and here's the other term so much information so it has to compress and condense and kind of and the, this is like the off gassing of all of the crap we accumulate throughout the day right and right so could yeah go. that has a purpose too that's manifest a manifest dream is the download it is like exercise helps us discharge anxiety. Say more, say more about this manifest. Manifest dream is the dream where, okay, last night I watched this horror movie and I saw a friend and I uh, got overwhelmed with the, with the uh, horror movie or a, a scene in it. Mm-hmm. And so in the dream, I'm, pieces of that dream are recreated and the friend that I saw is in it. But still, there's a reason why those two things are put together. Part of the dream is manifest in that I'm downloading, let's say, uh-huh. from the night before what I'm still processing. Because it's difficult to go to bed with the news, or it's difficult to go to bed with a horror movie, or even something that excited you too much and be able to get grounded again and go to sleep. So, but the juxtaposition of those two coming together, we have to look at the dream like trying on shoes, like we don't understand any of it. And so why is this person in the dream? Who do they mean to me? What part of myself is that that's being represented by that person? And what part of my life may be the manifest downloading of this dream, but what part of my life might feel like that horror moment? And how is it in relation to that part of myself that this person is representing? So that is a way to look at the dream as it can be compensatory. Like if I'm feeling really depressed, I may have a really thrilling dream or a really spiritual dream or really ascendant dream that brings me up and helps me because the unconscious is trying to make us whole. It's trying to forward us. It's always trying to be a healer to us. It has that function. Jung talked about it as the religious function in the psyche. 
And that doesn't mean religion, but that means a spiritual search, that there's a part of our brain, and they're studying that now as the God module, that there's a part of our brain that seeks seeking, the seeking of the other, the greater other. It doesn't have to have a certain dogma, a certain title or name, but there's a need that we're seeking. And so the unconscious is doing that. It's seeking to help us. And then, you know, we can have a dream that is prescient, where we know that something is ominous or coming, or if we don't attend to this, like the nightmare, the mare who runs through the night, that is in the dream world, that especially if it's recurrent and The stronger it is, the more powerful it is, the more there's this, pay attention, pay attention. I mean, I've had prescient dreams where I saw an event that morning, and it was frightening, and it happened within hours later. That's the prescient dream. We have prescient dreams in the culture, much like after 9-11, when a group of Jungian analysts who collected paintings and pictures and dreams from their analysts, and they got together after 9-11, and they looked at the commonality of infernos and planes into buildings and terrorist attacks that was in the collective. That's the collective unconscious, and that's even deeper than the personal unconscious. But if we're connected, and we always are to those things, that's like intuition. And the intuition is in the body. It has a a knowing. It's like that gut instinct. It's like the Indians say, white man, he's stupid. He thinks with his brain. He doesn't think with his gut. He will be killed by the tiger. That's what intuition is. It's attending enough to these things that we think are weird. Or why am I thinking about that now? Or why do I feel badly about this? Why is my gut telling me, be careful, pull back? That's not good. Why is it you think all of a sudden when you're driving in traffic, Whoa, slow down. Don't get near that guy. Your intuition, your gut knowing is saying, cautious, be careful. Now that can be overcompensatory mm-hmm. too. Right. If we have been traumatized, we get overly anxious. We get overly expectational. We see paranoid things. But paranoia also has in it mm-hmm. right. some real knowing and me- remembering of what didn't go well. So it's anticipatory thinking. That to me, it gets it gets at something Bob Rolfe said a few weeks ago or a month ago, that his teacher said something like, you know, the, each of us, you know, the, the thing we need the most is, is discernment. And being able to, this is always, I think always the issue, it's the ambivalence of being able to discern, you know, is this my anxiety or is this my intuition, you know, is... Um, maybe more like a reactive anxiety that's responding to my history or some kind of issue in, in me and it's kind of asking for me to look at it or more outward orientation like I'm sensing something about the world that's 
kind of outside of my rational way of my measurement. You know, I'm not able to, I can't look at it and know, know in quotations, you know, by some kind of measured way of knowing, but I just know. I just, I just have an idea, an inkling. Um, so if you think of the unconscious as knowing the known that we don't know yet and always trying to give us some sense of knowing and the more we can be capable of being in our internal world, sitting in silence with ourselves, trusting our feelings, trusting our knowing, the more accessible that knowing is. And the more it can come through. Yeah. And it's almost like a, the more present you can be with that, the better you get at discerning what, what is, what is what. I mean, so you, when, when the ambivalence comes up, you can't, you can't just know if you haven't been paying attention to it. And so you've got to pay attention to it. And then your decisions, for example, will be made easier, easier in quotations. You know, you'll, you'll be able to intuit what, uh, what to do, for example, or the next step. I th- this is my super geek thinking right now because I just thought about Gandalf in the movie Lord of the Rings when they had a you know three ways to go and he's like ah, I'm gonna sit down and he sits you know the wizard sits smokes his pipe and strokes his beard and then says ah I know and he ends up I think he smelled something <laughs> but he remembered something and smelled it and sometimes and, the smartest thing to do is to not do anything yeah yeah and I think in in I mean, I don't want to like. I think that I I can probably bias sometimes at, you know, this is where we're going wrong kind of thinking. I think we're doing a lot right, but I do think that. And I, I was reading Robert Johnson, and I can't remember if I've said this on the podcast, but I was reading Robert Johnson's Owning Your Own Shadow, written in 1991, and he talks about how a household at in in nineteen in the nineteen nineties uh, in America would take a staff of like twenty six, a hundred and fifty years prior to that, and his point is that we we sacrifice a lot by being disconnected from, you know, taking out the trash and, um, you know, doing the laundry and chop you know, wood, carry chop water. Wood, yeah, that we, the idea we we aren't as in the process of being connected with those. Um, re- re- fundamental realities of living, and so then we become disconnected from, you know, I almost think of like a woodworker, you know, being able to feel where where to chop, where to cut, where to, you know, mm. and um, and that's not a. You said something that I thought was really cool about this, and this may have been from the book you were talking about. We, we extraordinary knowing. We yes, were talking about that one. Um, and it may, you remind me, but it was about the neurosurgeon. Neurosurgeon. Yeah. They asked him why he had such a high, high 99% success rate. How could that be? And they went to him and interviewed him and said, can you tell me why that is? And he said, well, I really can't. And he said, well, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what is it that you do? And he said, I don't ever operate on anyone until I sit at their head and I look at their head and until there's a knowing that comes up in me about exactly where I need to go in, I don't operate. That may take minutes if it takes hours, 
I wait until I know. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a whole line of thinking there around physicians and um, kind of the nature of our standard of care currently. And, I, and, I, and loss of relationship yeah. and enough time for relationship and to know I, us as a whole person. Right. We happen to office really close to the uh, Houston Medical Center, and and so I, I'm, I'm assuming in your practice as well there are a number of physicians and mm-hmm. aspiring physicians. Yes. And I, I do know being as connected as it kind of – I'm on the external of that because um, with a degree of separation, but I, I know that the medical schools are moving in that direction to try to bring – to kind of <laughs> bring back the leather satchel and, um, you know, teaching mindfulness uh, you know we're we're having these cultural interventions to kind of address what has been sacrificed in the process of kind of growing uh access and economics and managed care and, and insurance you know all those right all know. of the losses of connection i grew up because i'm 68 at a time when the doctor did come to the house mm-hmm. and it's like the old social workers used to make home visits and you get so much information in that first two minutes. You see the family system. You see the resources. You see how sick the person is. You can put your hands on them. You can look in their eyes. You can be there when they're the most needful. Hmm. I had scarlet fever, and the doctor came to the house, and I was psychotic from fever. And his face was like Twilight Zone, where it would get big and small, and it was terrifying. And he could know immediately I needed to be hospitalized. Now, if that had been a phone call or an email or even an emergency room, how long would it have taken? When this is a critical point, because scarlet fever can affect your heart. It can, you know, it can kill you. Mm -hmm. And... To have this familiar person who was so unfamiliar in the moment, but familiar with my family, be able to come into my room, be able to feel like, okay, I, I'm going to be helped, even though this is terrifying. And I also like the idea that even in that kind of psychosis, hallucination, or any hallucination, or large moment like that, like... When people are dying, there's a reckoning with their life and their leave-taking that comes up in, whether it's word salad, where they're saying things that sound like gibberish, they're reckoning with parts of their story and their life as they're trying to pass on, not only to this world, but to the other They're trying to tell their loved ones what's running through their mind. And people will see someone who's passed over, as we say, has already died. And who knows if they're in that transient or transcendental space where they actually are having a communication with the spirit or with the spirit remembered in them to prepare them to go. But if we judge these things... If we put them away as crazy, we miss the opportunity to help that person reckon with whatever way they're trying to reckon with their life and their passing. 
And that's a huge task. We leave our body. We leave our relationship to our physical life. We leave our relationship to all those we've loved. We, rele- we leave our memories. We leave all of these things we have to unplug from. And the terror or the unknown about what's ahead. So the more comfortable we can be with the mysterious and the unknown and not live with certainty and labeling and judging things and putting them into some decided what this means, then we've lost the ability to go further and more depthful and to be with the unknown. And that's hard to do. It's hard to live in uncertainty. We have these rituals and this life of things that make us feel comfortable, that make us feel like we have control, the illusion of control, but the sense of comfort in it. That's why if our home gets flooded or we lose something, that even if it's something small, there's this sense of loss of control. Where is it? I've got to find it. Well, we're finding part of that sense of control and identity that we can lose because we've imbued that object and that place Mm -hmm. with a sense of safety, security, knownness. And I'm grounded here. I'm safe. Do you think about death much? A lot. Do you think about your death? Of course. And I love the book by Daphri Jean called... A good death. No, easy death. That's the name of it. Easy death. (laughs) And he talks about that if every day we attend to our death, we live more in our life, and death doesn't have to terrify terrify us. It can bring us a peace. That our ability every day, and I'm aging, and It's preparing the ego to let go enough to meet the self. That is what the Jungians call the ego self-axis. That every day there's another mole or there's a weakening of muscles or there's more cellulite or there's more wrinkling or there's less capacity for muscle to use and get up with or your knees hurt more or your neck, whatever it is. There's more an assault to your ego. Again, defeat to the ego is a victory to the self. So if you can embrace that and think about the mystery of what's ahead and the joining of that unknown, I have been fortunate enough to have had a near-death experience, more than one, that that brought me to a mystery that I would not have been able to know, live, or understand had I not been initiated to a world that is beyond this world and in it at the same time. I was eight years old when I was almost drowned in a pool. Neat. Oh, my God. I mean, you're like five. When do you have scarlet fever? Ten. Five, eight, and ten. So... What happened in that near-death experience was I was like floating above the pool while they were working on me. And I was looking down, 
And it was a true outer body experience, but it also I had this tremendous pull to the right. And it was blissful. It was ecstasy. It was warm. It was enveloping. It was like the biggest hug you would ever know. It was so beautiful. And I thought, oh, I'll just lean that way. Wow. And then to the left, I could look down and I could see them working on me. And I would think about my father and the grief he would have if I let go and how much pain he would be in, how much I would miss him, but more importantly, how much he would miss me. And it felt like a choice I had to make. Could I lean right or lean left? And in that moment, I chose my father, and I felt myself like whoosh, and I was in my body, and I was coughing up water. So to have had that opportunity, which I see as part of the initiation of my narrative, my story, to be a healer, to be a seeker, to be a questioner. You know, a truth seeker is a philosopher. A PhD is a doctorate of philosophy. I think I was initiated to that in many ways, many times, which allows me to sit with people who have to bear the unbearable, ask the larger questions, and for me to hold the space because of that transcendent experience that this isn't all there is and that these are parallel existences if we allow them. I asked Jeff Kripal, what do you say to somebody who has never had that? I say, I understand your cynicism or your questioning or your sense of how can I believe that and have that leap of faith because I've not been given the initiation to that. So I say to people, look for the little moments, the little places where something, maybe you almost walked into traffic and somebody pulled you back. Maybe that day you got up and you decided not to go to work that morning. And had you gone, you would have been in the Twin Towers. That's a larger than small moment. But to look for those places where maybe you haven't had that awe-inspiring overwhelmment of the ego where the ego is so put aside that you are in the world of another space. Now, there are people to the cynicism who would say, well, your brain was bathed in chemicals. Your body's biology was trying to protect you. Mm -hmm. And that can be true as well. But I have had enough of those experiences that I cannot just put it down to hormones or chemicals. There's some other hand at play of something much larger that is inexplicable and that guides me, that I think can guide all of us in some way, if we can 
allow that mystery of the unconscious. And maybe the experience will come and maybe it won't, but I think at death's bed, it will. I've seen and helped people to die, and I've seen extraordinary things happen. I had a friend that I went to be with who was dying. She was like my emotional, intellectual mother. And it was the week before she died. And she would have these moments where she would lose time and she would sort of black out and come back and she'd say, Nanny, what's happening to me? I said, you're practicing leaving. And it's not so terrible, is it? In fact, it kind of feels like you awakened and that you went somewhere you didn't know. It was dark and you didn't quite know the territory. But you came back and you're not afraid. So good. You're getting ready. You're in the dying process. I was at my father's bedside for five days. And he was on a paralytic drug. So all I had were the machines to watch. He was hooked up to like 18 different plugs. I came in the room and I would, I was studying hypnosis at the time, and I would hypnotize him and I would watch the machines as all the regulating would come down and he would get calmed again. And when the fifth day came and he finally died, we all gathered around his bed And I remember, even in that paralytic drug, he looked at each one of us mindfully, gazed at each one of us till he had everyone's eyes. Then he sat up in the bed. He was thrown up and thrust by his chin. And it was as if you could see the spirit leaving his head and He fell back like a cicada that had lost its shell, and his body then was a shell. And you could see the colors of the deep purples and grays at sunset coming out of the top of his head as he transitioned out of this world. And all of us knew he was no longer in the room, and we didn't need to stay another minute. It was that complete And it's my belief if you can be that intimate with death in your own life and with someone else's dying, it is the greatest closure, it is the greatest completion, and you'll always have it. I think more than anything, I just want to sit... pretty emotional there Uh, I guess one of the reasons why the the both us I mean uh, with your father I I couldn't help but think about your decision and you're the reason behind it for him and with him and to be there at his death 
chose to live with him in mind and sat at his bedside as he died. The, the death and the way that we approach death, I think, holds in it a lot of hints at how we approach life. You bet. And again, I don't mean to get on a cultural bandwagon or anything here, but we certainly don't have the orientation that you've talked about when it comes to death. Not in our culture. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's right. Not in our culture. It is out there. Look at what they do in Mexico with Day of the Dead. Look at what they do in India. Look at the way in which the dead are honored and revered. Look at the Eastern culture and how they revere the elders. Look at the daily rituals of the Japanese, opening the altar, lighting the candles, fixing the clock, closing the altar at the end of the day. It's as important to light the candle as it is to blow it out. I I don't know. I tend to get sad that we don't have the kind of orientation that harmonizes us with the nature of our nature and the nature of nature. We can teach it and we can live it. I remember after my father died, there was uh, a storm that came, and I was back with the banana trees that were all decaying and falling down in the backyard, and I was chopping them down, and I was pulling up the muckety muck of it, the roots of it, and then I remember seeing the pups, the little pups that were left, and I thought, here's nature teaching me about death and rebirth and life and the cycle and the life cycle. And right after my father died, I was so aware in nature of all the places to see death and rebirth and the cycle of life. And I relied on some of the other cultures to create rituals for myself One day I was in one of those complexes. I was in the worst damn mood. I had no clue why. My husband was there and I thought, every thought I thought about him was terrible. Fortunately, I didn't verbalize any of them. And he said, I'm gonna go to Home Depot. Do you wanna go? And I said, no, why don't you go? It's probably a good idea for you to get out of the house for a while and leave me alone. I need to be alone. In those couple of hours while he was gone, I put on some music and I began to gather all the things that my father I could find had given me and I made an altar and I poured a glass of his favorite scotch, I put out pictures of him, I lit a candle, I found a silver coin that was of the day that, of the year that he was born and I played this music. And I 
went out to dance to move through my grief. And I cried. And all of a sudden I felt his spirit like when I was a little girl and I would dance on his feet. Mm. And it felt like he was with me. And it was such a homecoming. And it was so much solace. And I felt so at peace. And my mood was 180. I was happy. I was... It's like allowing the sadness so that the color could change. Being with the color long enough that another color comes. The feeling totally was transformed. And not because you were... That's a, that's again, I'm using this word orientation. That's a different orientation than trying to get out of the feeling that's creating something to give it a space to be able to be expressed. Well, if you think about the fact that it's not an accident, I'm a dance therapist and a psychologist, and that first language was the nonverbal, first language was movement, first language was the invisible world that comes through the moving to something else, to finding the internal knowing through movement, to connecting to what is emotionally laden and unknown, but can be found in that experience. So a dear friend of mine who is also a dance therapist said to me when I was just struck with such grieving, she said, don't forget your dance. She was so right. I'm so glad I asked you about death. I am too. It is the greatest teacher. It is the greatest intimacy maker. It is what gives our life meaning because it's limited, because it's taken from us, because in that void we find what we lost and what we can gain if we're courageous enough to move through it at its depth. What's it like being a woman in a culture and the kind of orientation that the culture takes to looks? I love that you have asked me this question. It means the world to me, this question. It actually was the subject of my dissertation. Whoa. My dissertation yeah, was... Hit gold, huh? Yes, really. <laughs> subject of my dissertation was the psychological profile of women who seek breast augmentation. Uh-huh. So in that, I studied the psychology of beauty... And I studied women and the influences that they have about their body image and how unhappy they are with their body image. And how much influence there is to try to control our bodies to keep them in this culture youthful. We Botox. We do cosmetic surgery. We get into the plastic woman syndrome. We try to keep this 
sense of who we are as women measured by our beauty, who we are as men measured by our wallet, Mm. what we provide. And it goes back in a very primitive archetypal way, meaning universal and old and historical, to if we're shapely, we're chosen as a good mate who can produce and reproduce. And there's, you know, the visualness of men, which is much more primal for men than for women in terms of looking for attractiveness, finding attraction. Yeah. So we are vulnerable to that. We are measured by our thinness, our fatness. In fact, it's probably the last bastion of prejudice that we're just beginning to tackle. You see the new ads for the anti-Victoria's Secret ads where the women of all shapes and sizes or the dove bars that are skin types and people of all different looks or the Hanes underwear Mm -hmm. where you see different body types being celebrated, different melanizations being celebrated. Well, in our culture, and especially when I grew up, a boy child was to be revered. And if you didn't produce a boy, you really failed. And I was the second girl in the 50s, 1950. And my grandfather didn't come to my birth because I was just another split tail. My father came late. I was born pretty quickly within two hours. It kind of fits my personality of moving through the world quickly. But when he came, he was disappointed that it was another girl until he saw how cute and pretty I was. So that became paramount in my orientation for my identity and to be loved. And that's there for every woman, but it was double down for me in the stories, in how I was to look being enough to being wanted. And that's every woman's story to some degree. And the psychology of beauty is that we imbue people. We imbue men who are taller as more trustworthy, more powerful, more important. We view women with beauty, with symmetry in their face, with a shapely body, a thin body, as more trustworthy, as more intelligent, as someone who has greater attractiveness in all ways. Mm -hmm. And so it was the Jordache commercial for jeans that came out about 20 years ago that just really resonated with me. And it's a woman who's looking in the mirror and she's liking the way she's looking and she's looking at her hips. And she says something like, I like the way I feel in these jeans. They make me feel sexy. That is where we have to join the authentic self, where we feel alive, where we feel sexy, where we feel desirable and attractive to ourselves because the more we follow the persona 
who we're supposed to be for the world, how we're supposed to look. And we follow a trend rather than find that integration of ourself in that. You can't find truth or authenticity if you follow persona too much. Well, let me, let me, uh, I'm curious then about something because, you know, let's go with this kind of model here, you know, men, wallet, women, attractiveness, and it's starting to shift a little bit. It is beginning to shift. But, so let's, let, within, that, within that model, isn't she liking the way she looks because that's the structure that's set up for her to like what she sees? Like Absolutely. And it gets reinforced. Right. And therefore, that can be the plastic woman syndrome. More Botox. More plastic surgery. Until you're losing more and more of your true face. There's Peter Fonagy has talked about what's happening to mothers and children now in attachment. When the mothers are Botoxing their faces or having cosmetic surgery, and all of those small micro-muscle groups in the face are frozen, and the child can't find the relationship to the emotional nuances of belonging and attachment, and it is creating a break in what has to be found and felt. It's sort of like when you hear terrible news and the newscaster has a flat face and no emotion in their voice and the tone is the same, and it's kind of gaslighting. It's crazy-making because what they're messaging is filled with horror or, my God, that's happening now? Well, when your child is reaching for you and you can only have a minimization of your response and your ability to be read as a loving, receiving other, and in attachment, we're lucky if we can match 33.5%. That's good. So if we're minimizing that, we're starting from there. What are we creating and where, where might that be in place with autism or dysregulation mm-hmm. or ADD? Where does this play a part and a role? That is blowing my mind. It's really very important for us to look at trying to hold on to what is real. I don't dye my hair on purpose. That every day there's a change in my body and there's a change in the authentic becoming of becoming an elder. Now that doesn't mean that I don't wear makeup and enjoy it and wear clothes that are are of the trend and yet there's a style and a signature that I hold on to that I know is me Mm -hmm. and that's vital and important so that uh, the way I want to put that is like shifting yourself to accommodate the norms of the culture as opposed to expressing what's authentic in you and I think that is a that seems to be kind of one of the themes about this narrative that that as soon as we begin to kind of manipulate ourselves and we can go back to the beginning of our conversation you know we're starting to sacrifice things and um, 
yeah, I'm, I'm still actually pretty blown away by that. I, I've never put that together about, of course, the micro muscle uh, features that express emotion that we, happens in deeply, like beyond our kind of conscious awareness. We got to finish in a few minutes. Okay. I'm bummed. I want I want more time. <laughs> 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 Well, maybe one day we'll do it again. Yeah, no, I didn't. Yeah, we'll do it. I'm down. <laughs> gosh. Um, so what what little threads are, are, are left out that we that we want to kind of connect with, poke back into? You got anything that sticks out? Well, back to the body. I think that there's a healthy narcissism mm-hmm. and an unhealthy narcissism. The difference is much like what came out in the research that I did with the women who sought breast augmentation. Those who did it for themselves, let's say they were always an outlier. The breast was too small and never really grew into the norm. Or they always had a sense of deficiency about that. And they needed that just for themselves. There was a huge difference in that person that I interviewed versus the woman who did it because she was having a poor sexual relationship and hoping to hold her husband or boyfriend. Or her boyfriend wanted her to do it and she did it for him and then he wasn't satisfied. Or someone who did it because their friends did it and they had maybe 90 days of a glow and then they're right back where they were. Mm -hmm. And I think that the body is how we treat it. It's not a machine. It's not to be exhausted. It's not to be manipulated. It's, not, it's really Sophia. It's the wisdom of the self. It's the wisdom of the unconscious. It's the wisdom of the knowing. Everything we experience is experienced through, first through the body. We don't have a phenomenological or spiritual experience or an emotional experience. We don't make love without the body. And the context of really finding union with something else is first experienced in the sensibilities of the body. And so the more that we treat the body as a machine, as something that we want to will and control and, and try too much to manipulate, we lose the relationship to the very place where we find the most union and the most identity with the world, with ourselves, with the other. And that's where we can experience such joy and such presence and both the presence to the sadness and the presence to love and the other in connection to all of life, whether it's the beauty of looking at a tree or finding the bird who's in front of you or the moment where somebody really appreciates this moment with you, the music that moves you till you find yourself tapping your foot, moving, rocking your body. That's where you are in relationship. It comes through the body. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you. This is... Uh... It was a joy being in your space and learning from you. And my uh, 
my cup is so full I want another three cups to fill up. Mm, thank you, John. Thank you. Chocolate eclair, so damn sweet that I swear. I got a hold in my tooth from a kiss on the cheek, and that's the truth. I get a little sugar high when she bends me by. Till like them devils, till I ain't going out of my head. I'm just a warm bite. Is more than a treat You know it's tender and sweet I'm doing all that I care I'm gonna get my love cause I'm a man Boss with the strive for the pride She's gonna hide and in she try out Girl, just so makes me sing, say y'all She's my everything, come on Everything, Lord, I'm in on you know well I'm defenseless to my little girl Shine well Tastes like honey coming right straight from the field Oh, now take me down Set me free I said, take me down Why don't you set me free? I said, take me down Oh, Lord, you wanna set me free If you care right now I won't be set free now, now Oh, the first time I heard that girl speak like a silver street In order that all I could do out the way I truly fell aside The funny how it happened to change today Wishing love was on my heart away Lay my life down on the line Just a bit of love I keep my pen and all right tonight Well, every day, Lord, for me I'm in the well. Well, I'm defenseless Since two of my girls shot me Tastes like honey coming right straight from the
Come on, sing with us one time. Let's do it, y'all. Come on, come on. Take me down. Come on. And set me free. Let me y'all sing that. Thank y'all so much.